0: Join me, Jacqueline Coley, on a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen, presented by Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that shape them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I am Mark Ellis, joined, as always, by Jacqueline Coley. Jacqueline, there is some swindling going on on Tinder, and I want to talk about it. But unfortunately, that's not what we're here to discuss today.
0: No, but I will say this. I have not watched the Tinder Swindler Netflix documentary, but I have watched the ID uh, episode on because ID it, uh, mm-hmm. Discovery Network is where all of the good docs happen before they go to Netflix and elsewhere. Oh, those really? guys are on the ground floor. Oh, ah, OK. Yeah. All right. So you you might
2: actually be ahead of me in some in some regard when it comes to these big documentaries that I just think I just discovered for everybody else.
0: No, they're quick and dirty. Tiger King, quick and dirty. But you, you get the points. <laughs> you get, the, get in there. The Netflix uh, ones are better. We are here
2: to talk about something that I guess got in on the ground for, if you wanted to, way back in 1965 with a novel by a young man named Herbert. And then that went on to be a 1984 film directed by none other than David Lynch. And again, in 2021, at least the first half, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And that would be Dune, the epic about sand and spice. The 1984 David Lynch version is 43% rotten. On the tomato meter, 65% audience score, so at least it's fresh there. And the 2021 film, 83% certified fresh. And with the audience, it is all the way up to 90%. So we're going to be talking about All Things Dune, both versions of the film we're going to be covering here today. And Getting Deep with the War is going to be the host of the Big Hit Show podcast and the upcoming book, Most Triumphant, a story of Keanu Reeves' filmography. Alex Papadamus is about to join us here. Jacqueline, this is so exciting because you came across Dune long before I did, but we talked about it. We were hyped when the movie was coming out. It got some Oscar nods, but also like there's no real way to give a synopsis of dune without taking the amount of time that the movie takes to watch right
0: yeah um (laughs) it's it's space it's sand it's worms and uh spice spice and uh everything nice with timothy chalamet and david lynch and that's why you love it (laughs) that's one of the reasons why i love it I, i will say that yeah
2: but yeah, I mean, it, you're you're also a big David Lynch head. Now, David Lynch, let, let's just clear the record right here. Was never really in the running to direct Return of the Jedi because he didn't want to do it. But there was a meeting. George Lucas asked him if he would be interested in directing Return of the Jedi. Said no to that. Next year, Dune comes out. So we're going to be talking about the 84 Dune and Denny Villeneuve's first half of Dune that I just got to watch both these this week. And so a whole lot of excitement here. It's a story of destiny, and we'll leave it at that. (laughs) But as we shortchange the synopsis, we are going to remind y'all that we are going to be talking spoilers aplenty for both versions, and maybe we'll get into some novel spoilers too, but nothing too deep there because reading is a lot harder than watching a movie. What is great is when we get to hear Tim Ryan, our expert review curation manager here at Rotten Tomatoes, tell us what the critics were saying at the time Of the release of 84 and the release of last year's 2021 version of
1: Dune. Tim, the floor is yours. Two minutes with Tim. Frank Herbert's Dune has often been described as an unfilmable book, but that hasn't dissuaded filmmakers from taking a crack at it. On today's podcast, we're discussing David Lynch's 1984 version, which critics largely found to be visually striking but narratively muddled, and Denis Villeneuve's 2021 version, which critics largely found to be visually striking and substantially more narratively coherent. The 1984 Dune is rotten at 43% with 65 reviews, and it has a 65% audience score. The 2021 Dune is certified fresh at 83% with 447 reviews, and it has a 90% audience score. And just for the record, Hodorowski's Dune, a documentary that chronicles Alejandro Hodorowski's frustratingly futile attempt to adapt Dune, is certified fresh at 98% with 121 reviews. So what did the critics have to say? Let's start with the 1984 version. In a rotten review, Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what goes on in the movie. However, in a fresh review, Kirk Ellis of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Dune is not the masterpiece its adherents have hoped for, but neither is it the disaster its detractors have claimed. Now for the 2021 version. In a fresh review, K. Austin Collins of Rolling Stone wrote, Villeneuve's Dune is a thick, loud, well-fed spectacle of a movie, towering over the people in it with a brooding sense of intention, even in its quieter moments, even when wrestling through the Herbert novel's wide-ranging, learned, quirky mysticism. However, in a rotten review, Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal wrote, the plot machinery grinds to a halt as if clogged with sand and the well-earned welcome wears out. So that's the Dune cinematic universe. Let's kick it back to Jacqueline and Mark, who have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. Back to you, folks.
2: (laughs) I mean fact, sandworms factor prominently into this movie. And uh, there's another film that it reminded me of that features the sandworm. So, Jacqueline, we're going to talk about all this stuff and see whatever else, what other can of worms we can open with Alex Papadamis right on the other side of this. Let's get into movie talk. And as promised now, we are welcoming the star of the Big Hit Show podcast and dropping April 28th. He is the author of Most Triumphant, a look back at all of the hits and some misses of Keanu Reeves's film career. The one, the only Alex Papadame is joining us here. Alex, hello, sir. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Um, I'm not the star of the big hit show, though. <laughs> I have to say it's the, the tape is the star of the big hit show and the That's story fair. is the star of the big hit show. I just have to say that because I'm not I, that implies like a level of singing and dancing that I'm not ready to do. <laughs> Like a Dean Martin kind of quality that, like, I would like to say that I possess, but I don't know the star of our show. But you no, know, no, I am just the host. I'm just the conduit to the information. I'm uh, sorry to correct you, as our very, the very beginning of our relationship.
2: No, that's a, that, that's a very humble way to uh, to come on our show. But we are thrilled to have you, and not just because. I want to talk about both Dune movies, and and Jacqueline and I are coming at Dune from very different angles, just as far as when it entered our our, our airspace, I guess I should say. So before I ask you if the tomato meter is right or wrong with either the '84 or the '2021 Dune, when did you first stumble across this Dune mythology? Was it the novel? Was it one of the films? It was all right. So I was born in
3: 1977. In 1984, I was do the math, uh, seven years old. Um, so. The thing about the 1984 Dune, which maybe people who experience it now for the first time don't really necessarily get about it, is that it went through the blockbuster pipe along with all of those other things. Everybody thought this was going to be another Star Wars. And so this was marketed to kids, to seven year olds like me. There was a toy line uh, from LJN, like the sort of Star Wars figures and everything. And there were, uh, the, so my first Dune experience was the Dune storybook. Shout out to uh, adapter Joan DuVinge. Uh, It's like a hardback book for kids, but it has the entire story of the movie and a lot of like stills from the movie. And they did this a lot. Like you would get this from your scholastic book order or whatever. And like everybody in your class would be spoiled on Return of the Jedi like months ahead of time because they didn't have their things kind of lined up and everything. So that was how I learned about it. And I just assumed that this was meant for me as all things that were marketed in that way were meant for me. And then, of course, you watch this movie and it it was traumatizing in kind of the best way and it really stuck with me and i think that was where all of that mythology just of the the guild navigators mutating and all of those things really made an impression on me and then years later i became a fan of it almost in a different way because i became a huge david lynch fan in the interim so in like 1992 1 whatever watched it again a bunch of times as an obsessive Lynch head and saw everything that was going on with that movie that felt like David Lynch to me. And then I became a fan of it in a different way. So I kind of had those first two experiences and you could not have told me, I was very surprised to learn that it was a bomb the first time because I was like, this is an amazing uh, space epic that I, that I love as a seven, eight year old.
2: Yeah, it, it, Jacqueline. When you're a little kid, you have no you have no concept of what a budget is. But Dune in '84 was the most expensive movie ever made with a forty million dollar budget, and then its box office would do twenty seven million dollars. And my childhood's flooding back to me too because I remember those picture books. I had the Return of the Jedi one, and then Jacqueline, do you remember the sticker ones? I had a Willow sticker yes. book. I don't even know if I ever saw the movie Willow start to finish, but I knew it inside and out because of the sticker book.
0: No, so I had the novelization of Willow. Because I used to read novelizations and obsessed with them as one of the like, I was one of the few people who like legitimately got geeked when they heard that like people like Quentin, they're like doing these novelizations. Because that's actually how I introduced to more movies than people realize. Because they used to always do that. They would do the book, they would do the movie, and then they would do a novelization. Another great novelization I read, the 19, I think 99 classic, can't hardly wait had a novelization. I read that one. Like I literally have read some very deep cut uh, movie novelizations because that's a lot of the movies that I first loved were based on books and that's actually where Dune came into my life. When I was obsessing about Jane Austen and reading Little Women, the boys who had stumbled into the library alongside me, if they were not like getting the comic books or the graphic novels, they were holding copies of Dune.
2: Yeah, the novel came out in 65, and so, and, and so you had all this lore that was built into uh, this, sort of the public consciousness, and I think that it's regarded as the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time as well. And, and so, Alex, the, the public wants to know, needs this information. When you look at the tomato meter for Dune 1984, it's 43% rotten. So let's start with that one. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong with that score? I'm going to say that score is not surprising, but
3: personally, I disagree with it. It is, uh, you know, if it's if it was just me, that score would be much higher. <laughs>
0: that was yeah. so well, diplomatic. Yeah. I just the, say well, the that? audience is 65%. <laughs>
2: and so I think the audience maybe favors this movie, maybe for some of those childhood reasons that you do. Why, why in your mind, I guess, is the 84 one a, a, a fresh movie? It, it sounds like, is it just the the nostalgia of it? Or when you go back and watch it, is is the Lynchian elements that you've come to love in other movies? Wh- what stands out to you about that 84 Dune I think I mean and
3: I actually feel this way about both of them I feel this way about the 84 one and the 2021 one that these are both very specific directorial signatures on uh, an attempt to make Dune into a blockbuster movie. Right. So they're clearly uh, they're they're both trying to take this very sort of voluminous and confusing. Like if you read the original novel, like that is a dense book, like it is it is a heavy, dense book with a lot of story and a lot of backstory. And they're trying both trying to turn this into something that feels like a fun, like popcorn space movie, like in the Star Wars vein in some way, in some way or another, while kind of nodding to those kind of philosophical aspects of it that exist. I love how much, even though I think Lynch considers it a failure, I love how much he was able to put his stamp on this project, despite sort of what the intention was, which was to create like the next Star Wars, basically. Somebody hired, somebody wanted to create the next Star Wars out of Dune and they gave it to David Lynch, which made sense for a number of reasons at the time, which we could maybe talk about. But like, you know, he was there was a moment when he seemed to be pivoting towards like a, you know, a different career than he ended up with. And so I love how much it feels like David Lynch unleashed with this $40 million budget. Now you can see why he doesn't like it and why he's unhappy with it and why he thinks it's the one movie where he kind of sold out. And they there was a lot of stuff that was foisted on him uh, in the edit. You know, He turned in a three hour movie. It's two hours that, you know, it was rewritten in the editing room, all of that. I see all of those flaws, but the more I watch it, the more I see somebody who just, you can't you know, you you sort of it's like David Lynch is like the ingredient that you put in the stew that sort of it's like it's going to taste like David Lynch. It's going to turn into a David Lynch stew no matter what. And so there's so much of his kind of spirit in there and so much of his invention that I have a real affection for it that I don't think is really about nostalgia, because I think when I was a kid, it kind of like just messed me up watching it. Like I was like, I don't know what this is. So I mean, maybe it's a nostalgia for like late adolescence for being like 14 instead of being eight.
2: I mean, Jacqueline. I imagine for a kid watching this movie, it is like like a like a sniff of spice to the skull, and you're just like like your whole world opens up. And the thing that I love because I'm also with. Alex here. I think that the tomato meter is way too low for the 84 Dune. And I watched this after I saw 2021's version. I really, really had fun with this movie because I didn't know if I was going to get something that felt very over the top, like cheesy, like a Flash Gordon or something that, that did feel more authentic. And what I got was like a, an engaging sci-fi story. It gets very dull is the wrong word, but, but it gets very slow at points. But The performances in this movie were great, and I loved, as I'm watching the opening credits, I see, and it reminded me that I knew this information at some point, the music done by Toto and Brian Eno doing the the prophecy score. I'm like, oh, you're speaking my language now. I'm in.
1: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing
0: Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. See, so this is what's so crazy about Dune is I just so wonder what David Lynch's Dune could have been with the technology that is available now. Because the problem with, that I have with Dune is the same problem that they had when they decided to make this. The technology of movie making at the time was not something that could in any way match the vision of what Frank put in the novel. And it's just silly. So I think I saw Dune later, not this late, but like later. It was definitely an encore watch. I definitely recall the like promos because if folks remember back in the day, if you watched linear premium television, they didn't have commercials. So the only thing they put in between there were these little mini commercials for the movies that were coming out on the platform. And I remember very distinctly watching the promo for Dune, which then means that I probably watched Dune because I also like still remember the promo for Heathers, which is where I watched that movie for the first time. So I know I watched <laughs> it at that time and I didn't care. I just remember lots of sand. And I remember, you know, Kyle McLaughlin, who I thought was kind of dreamy at the time. And he was. Oh, yeah. He's very dreamy at the time. Still is. Um, still is. And um, after Sex and the City, though, we don't like him as much. Um, <laughs> just so you know. He was very bad in that show in the sense of like we hated his character. Anyway, so I just I just didn't think it was great. And then when I revisited it previously, recently, before this new one was about to come out, I was just like, I can't I can't with the bad CGI. I can't with like stings in a different movie. I like the movie that he's in, (laughs) but he's in a different movie. The uh, Harkness character, just some of the things that they did. It is a very Lynchian tale. I'm not going to pretend that that's true, but. There's just, there's so many limitations on the storytelling and at times it's just laughable. And so all of the great things that it does do well are just like held down. And I think it's this: what it is. It was a $40 million movie. And so it has these big movie sentiments, but it's in so many ways shot like the Toxic Avenger. And I just wish we would have just gotten the Toxic Avenger version of Dune. Like just make it. Like, don't pretend it feels like a student movie. So just make the student movie version of Dune. Let it cheese. Let it camp. Give me the John Waters Dune. I would have enjoyed it more.
2: Alex, do you agree with that? That maybe you just lean into what it was of the time and and don't try to be something that was ahead of its time, which was where we could have gotten all this great CGI that we see in the 2021 version. But we just, you know, it, to quote Marty McFly, we just weren't ready for that yet. Right. The technology wasn't there. I want to say that I would love to see the John Waters Dune. I don't want
3: to say I don't want to be in any way disagreeing with that sentiment because I would, I'm i in favor of giving John Waters most properties uh, uh. if he wants. Uh, you know.
0: Alex, I have a question for you real quick at this. Ask me why the CGI in Sinbad and the Seven Seas is better than the CGI in Dune. Tell me why. And that was claymation. The technology was there.
3: Uh, why is it better? Is that yeah, like, uh, tell
0: me why does it look like oh, more believable? Oh, it's a rhetorical
3: question. Yeah, you like, like, how you is know, that possible? Yeah, it's like trying to do, it's maybe trying to do less. I mean, I will say that, like, I enjoy this because of the practical effects in some way. I Like, the you know, all of these, the kind of the monsters and the way that the sandworm is very clear. There's a guy's arm in there. You can just kind of, it just has that feeling about it. I mean, it it is. You do feel like you can see the budget running out as things are happening. You know that they're <laughs> running through that forty million dollars, and that maybe forty million dollars was not enough. And that you know, at some point, uh, you know, this is part of this string of flops that bankrupts Dino De Laurentiis, and maybe the cash, yes. the cash, cash flow problems are starting to happen. It's not solely this; it's also like Red Sonia and
0: yeah, time yeah. And,
3: yeah, I guess I just appreciate that about it because it feels like this, It like all of it, it just feels like an expansion. It's like if Eraserhead had a $40 million budget and it just feels like what David Lynch would do with that. Um, and so that kind of, you know, I mean, maybe I'm just a Stan. Maybe that's just, you know, that is the bottom line here that I'm like, he, you know, because I don't think, I don't even think that he meant to do this. I don't think he would agree with me. I think this is the one movie he doesn't, this is the one movie he doesn't like to talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah, I've seen in interviews that that, that David Lynch re- regrets how, how it came out because he did feel like it was made in the editing room without him and it was not the cut that he would have approved. He wanted a longer film too because we're talking both of it. He yeah. wanted his
0: name taken off of it. He wanted his name taken off of it. Yeah, well, and, he took his
3: name off. He had the long version, the TV version, which he has a bunch of scenes just, Pay, they wanted to make it 176 minutes so they just stuck a bunch of stuff back in there apparently it doesn't really exist in any form that he'd be happy with like they've offered him the chance to do a director's cut on it and he's like nah I don't want, I don't want to revisit it because I guess he didn't get to shoot it the way that he wanted to and they had to shoot all this extra stuff and like all that apparently all the narration the parts where it's like you know you just sort of there's a shot a static shot of somebody's face and then they're like thinking in their head you know like Duke Leto never has a second cup of coffee at home that's all like <laughs> uh, something that he you know <laughs> was was forced to do, right? Because they need to get all this exposition in there because they're terrified that it won't make sense to people. That's the main problem with it is that it's like larded with all of this information up front that they want you to get. They want you to know everything going in. they don't want you to be confused. And I think part of the Vinuev uh, movie that's better is that like they you know, uh, p- directors are able to trust audiences a little more and also they're expecting people to have read about it ahead of time. so they're not going to be walking in completely lost. And so the first 40 minutes of Dune is like teaching you how to watch Dune in the Lynch version. And it's very, it's, you know, very, here's, here's what all these factions are about. And, you know, it's a lot of uh, information thrown at you.
2: But see, as an audience member, I am like, okay, I'm a reasonably intelligent human, like out on the street and I got some book smarts. I'm a moron sometimes when it comes to watching movies, especially getting inundated with all this mythology, so I, it was like playing catch-up watching, because I saw the 2021 version first, and so by the time I came to David Lynch's Dune, I, I felt pretty versed, and I felt like, oh, I can keep up with this, and I will defend, to my dying breath, how cool the armor looks in the 84 one. When, when the, during the combat scenes, that look, it looked cool to me, especially in 1984. I imagine that's like something that I would immediately run out of the theater, and me and, and my brother would worse. be Fighting each other with pillows. robots,
0: dude. Oh, come on. They looked worse. They looked worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs> What's the <laughs> <a> scene <laughs> for you, Alex, <laughs> that you say this 1984, like, like this is why I, I can still enjoy and revisit this? Can you boil it down to, to a scene that really stands out to you from that first movie? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, but I will give it to
3: the first big sort of set piece scene where the uh, the guild navigator, which is this. Uh, it, I guess, used to be a guy and has w- morphed into a giant worm who floats in a tank of space drugs all the time. And that gives uh, him the power to fold space and sort of move, uh, you know, arm- uh, armadas of spaceships from one side of the galaxy to the other. And uh, one of these creatures shows up with his entourage to have an audience and kind of give the emperor of the galaxy a hard time. And it sort of pulls into this uh, big sort of throne room in what looks like a giant train. It's a very Lynchian sort of object. It looks like the teapot from Twin Peaks, the return. It looks like a train car with like (laughs) steam coming out of it. It's just like, it's, it's one of those things. This is what I'm talking about that. Like he manages to get like the types of things that he just loves to shoot for whatever reason, for whatever kind of like unexplained David Lynch aesthetic preference. And then it opens up and it's this like really gnarly sort of puppet thing with a, kind of like, I'm just going to say, it's kind of a vaginal mouth that opens and breathes and talks, you know, and it's a very kind of weird David Lynch dream image. It looks like the, you know, if you, if you know, Eraserhead, it kind of looks like the baby from Eraserhead. Like he's got all of these, he has kinks and he keeps hitting them in movie after movie. And there's a lot of exposition in this movie. There's a lot of, in this piece of the movie, there's a lot of things that aren't explained, but you do get the sense of this vast galaxy and I, that with a lot of, Weird stuff going on that you are not necessarily let in on, and I am enraptured every time when it's like the guys like there are many machines on X, and I'm like I don't know what X is, I don't know why that's significant, but like the like Jose Ferrer seems very like upset about this, like he's like oh really like yeah it's yeah
2: we have just folded space from X
3: yes how was your journey many machines on X.
1: Machines. oh yes better than those on richess. you are transparent I see many things I see plans within plans
3: I see two great houses house Atreides
1: house Harkonnen I see
3: you it. as much as this movie is like probably sort of uh, you know kept from being as great as it is by its need to explain everything and by its need to kind of lead the audience by the hand it's also so confusing and that feeling of being confused like takes me back to being a kid I guess in some ways and I love that about it but it's just it's so ominous and there's so much <laughs> seriousness but then there's also like all of the weird production design that like his sort of uh, which the, like the, the Denis version has a little bit too with the guy with the microphones, you know, those guys talking to the, you know, because that's what I like about the Denis one too is I think it takes in the, the Lynch one as part of the mythology a little bit. Like it makes it part of the the Lynch mythology. But yeah, that there's all those like strange uh, characters who show up and, you know, it's just, uh, it's amazing. And like, you know, I'd be hard pressed to really even remind, I, I'd have to think about what he's actually saying. Um, well, so he wants to kill. They want. He they wants him to kill uh, Comstockland. That's like the, basically the, the you know, gist of the scene. But there's so much pageantry around it. So, and that's for like very early in the film. Um, but there's a lot of things like Sting holding a
2: hairless cat. Like, come on, what of good animals know. in this movie. A lot of good animals.
0: I, listen, I'm we, not we mad open, about Sting. We get, I'm we just get a saying. train
2: of bulldogs. We get. We we get uh, yeah. the, the House of Trades pug. And then we get a hairless cat. And so we do get a little bit of everything. Now, those aren't even, I mean, those are some of my favorite parts of the movie, Jacqueline. But it's also just fun having eyes on this and the 2021 Dennyville new version, which will bring in now somewhat is 83% certified fresh on the tomato meter. So a markedly, you know, uh, improvement from at least how critics felt about the original and even higher with the audience score. It's a 90% audience scores. So if you're a fan of Dune, whether it was 84 or it was the novel, it seems like you were pretty pleased with this new version. And that was one of the delights of going back to 84 for me is seeing like the character of Gurney, for instance, you get to see Josh Brolin, but then I saw Patrick Stewart as him and it is like, oh, this is some really, there's some good casting matchups here. Now, Jacqueline, if I give you the character of Paul and I say, okay, it's Kyle MacLachlan versus. Your boy Timothy Chalamet. I think I know which way you're leaning, but it's it's a hard decision for you. I'm willing to bet.
0: Actually, okay, this is the problem. Kyle McLaughlin is too old to play Paul Atreides, and Timothy Chalamet is too dainty. <laughs> they kind of make a joke about it, like where um yeah,
2: Momoa of all people yeah, just kind of like, it gives him a quick out? senior no? freshman bully moment. Oh
0: my god, it was so bad. But I will say of the two, like it's really what's interesting is Timothy Chalamet very much is doing what Leonardo DiCaprio did. His, Leonardo DiCaprio looked boyish until he just didn't. Like Leonardo DiCaprio literally looked 22 until he was like 35 and then he looked like a normal adult. I think Timothy's going to be the exact same thing. He's going to look very, 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 very boyish until he looks like a man. And like I need him right before that shift. I need like Leo in The Departed to be that version. And this is not that that yet for for Timmy, but he, I will still pick Timmy.
2: Yeah, I was reminded of Wart, the animated character from Disney's Sword in the Stone, <laughs> when I was watching Timothy Chalamet because I appreciated that about him though, that he is just so dainty. He's just so thin and, and young looking and that this is, I mean this whole movie is is basically it boils down to that this kid doesn't feel like he's ready for the responsibilities, but at some point, life is just going to saddle you with it, and you have to suck it up and sort of live out your destiny, even if you don't feel prepared for it, which us watching it, we're like, this kid can't take on the fate of the entire universe, but that's sort of the the point, isn't it? Is that you don't feel ready for this, and you just have to suck it up and just do it. So for me, I I appreciated what what Denny started, and I'm looking forward to what he finishes sooner rather than later Alex, are you with the Tomato Meter score for the 2021 Dune? Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong or right with that 83%? Yeah,
3: sure. I mean, you know, I think some of the reception of the 2021 one is born out of this belief that the 1984 one needs to be remedied somehow by, you know, the, the doing it right. You know, which is a very, which is a very kind of like modern sort of superhero movie way of thinking about things where it's like, oh, this one in the past was a little corny and there were some things wrong with it. So we're going to do, we're going to do it right. And there's a certain like aesthetic criteria that sort of constitutes doing it right. And part of it is just doing it real big and like letting it you know, kind of breathe in a way that like it does make it, uh, you know, m- more in the spirit of the novel, feel more epic. You know, that like he only does the first half of the book and just kind of cuts it off like in a crazy way so that the big sort of like climactic battle in the first one is a knife fight, which is kind of great. I sort of love that about it. And it like hits, it's, you know, it looks amazing. It's like, I really feel like that one is probably the 2021 is probably the best case scenario for a big modern blockbuster adaptation of this book that just recedes further and further into the past and like really kind of has to be brought forward in a lot of ways creatively so i think that yeah i think it's you know it's definitely it's definitely that i don't buy that there was something wrong with the 84 one and that part of you know i think that's a lot of like what people are excited about it's like oh finally somebody like really did it but like i feel like david lynch really did it too in a david lynch way which again david lynch would tell me that i'm wrong you know loudly and and then not say anything else <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, Jack, part of this, though, is, is I, I just think that maybe critics in 84, and I'm not trying to speak for them, might have looked at this movie and said, OK, so the Eraserhead guy is now doing this beloved sci-fi novel. I don't know that he got the credibility as a director that Denny Villeneuve got in 2021 when Dune is coming out, because folks love this guy's movies already. And he's just seen as as this modern day auteur who, whenever he's got a property, come, regardless what the movie's about people want to go see it because good chance is going to be critically acclaimed in Oscar sort of conversations those are worlds you walk in is that your feeling on 2021's dune is that it lived up to the hype of a denny villeneuve director
0: um yes it definitely lives up to the hype but i do think that there's a little bit of correcting the record with david lynch because what's interesting and what you know Alex sort of remind me of he was one of the first directors to sort of the brunt of an indie director going and doing a big budget thing and the somewhat betrayal. But what's interesting is it wasn't like Chloe Zhao doing The Eternals. David Lynch doing Dune was like Gaspar Noe doing uh, um, Doctor Strange. Like, it's very like, yeah, you know, and honestly, the, the closer thing to it is James Gunn doing Guardians of the Galaxy. James Gunn is a trauma like Mm -hmm. very uh, exploitation style director. And so him doing a like family-esque friendly comedy movie uh, about superheroes is really a twist. And that's what Lynch did. And I think people thought it was going to be like that. And I think if Dune could have had the technology to support what it was, it would have maybe more been akin to that. And since these books have proliferations that just get weirder and weirder as they go along, The idea that he could have continued that on like a three book arc is like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Denny got the benefit of the doubt. But Denny also did Blade Runner 40 2049, which wasn't a a commercial hit, but it definitely was a critical one. And he's still he's that director. He was always like doing smart stuff. You think of something like Sicario Denny? It wasn't that big of a jump. It's like Scorsese doing gangster flicks and then doing something more serious. It's like, yeah, you did start here, but you always had those sentiments. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: you you could even look at Blade Runner 2049 as by far the most expensive demo reel ever made because if you see that movie, then you say, this is the guy that I want adapting Dune and the fact he's doing it in two parts. So Alice, I'll go back to you for the 2021 version. What's the scene in that film that really stands out to you that says, this is why this movie is where it is in in my heart and also on the tomato meter
3: uh, Sardaukar planet baby At, all day um, that when they go to the sort of so there's this army right that in the and they show up in the Lynch version and there's a lot of things in the Lynch version they're just like he just kind of is like oh yeah there's they're here like they don't really get big a lot of people don't get big entrances and a lot of characters don't get huge entrances and like for instance like the Duncan character like that Lynch is like I don't know who this guy is or why he's here he shows up <laughs> He's there. I don't. I forget what even sort. You know, I. I. What even happens to him? You know, it's not like the Momoa sort of like the big sort of rollout that you know that he gets. So the Sartakar is like this army of uh, mercenaries and. In the Denis version, you get to see where they come from and there's a sort of there's a whole culture on their planet. Uh, you know, there's the there's a guy kind of like exhorting them to, I guess, you know, battle more effectively in and he's got kind of throat singing. You know, he's doing that thing where you hit two pitches at once with your voice. He's got a whole microphone situation. And that was an example of something that that's not in the uh The the Lynch version and it was like really amazing to see that Betray these legions are the finest in the Imperium. Trained by Gurney Alec, Duncan Idaho.
0: Just
1: so three battalions has agreed.
3: I think in general just just the scope. Of the Denis one and like, you know, the giants, the spaceships that are like the size of a moon kind of coming down. Like he really it's it's very clear that unlike Lynch, who uh, there's a rumor that he never read the book Lynch and that he just kind of got the script and sort of was into it and said, sure, and then worked on it with some writers, but that he never actually read Herbert like. Denis is obviously a fan of this, obviously wants to go the distance and make all of these crazy books which I would love to just talk about for a second in the context of these movies if we can, like where this is, franchise is theoretically going if you've read the novels, but so yeah, I think that's you know, it's it it's, it's that moment for me. It's it's seeing things that were never uh dramatized before. Um you know, like that and that's that's what's what's most exciting. And I like when he uh when uh, Paul has his little spice trip outside of the Uh, the carry-all in the sort of the big, uh, you know, the big, the first sandworm sequence when he kind of uh, goes on his, you know, uh, th- they make more of that in the Denis version it's, it happens very quickly for McLaughlin he's like oh spice like you know but this is it's like he, he got Timothy definitely gets like the contact high and sort of has the visions and everything I like how yeah you're I'll, that
2: I'll, I'll, I'll take that ball and run with it because that was clearly an example of everyone by 2021 knowing what exactly happens at Joshua Tree and needing <laughs> a little bit more of a feel for whoa this is like I, I mean <laughs> let's be dude is tripping balls outside and there's a sandworm coming which is Again, Beetlejuice fan that I am. As soon as I heard Sandworm, I'm like, oh, I'm totally in on this movie. But the way that the Sandworms look where you get to see the cloud and then you just get to see just this massive beast that lives below the surface. That first scene where we have to rescue everyone and then Gurney has to run out and, and grab Paul and get him back. I also love, 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 Jacqueline, the ships. I love like the butterfly helicopter. He thinks those were so cool looking.
0: Absolutely. I, I will say this, man. I, I don't want to beat up on it, but looking at Denny's version, i it's not only is it grand, not only is it lush, but it is like the opposite of that Michael Bay movie where there's still the little square of green screen that you can literally see in the final cut of the movie. <laughs> like, this is the opposite of cats. I really do feel every talon of that huge sandworm was like meticulously debated and thought about and visualized. And and it, the last movie I felt that level of care and detail for was Mad Max Fury Road, which was another movie like this new version of Denny that was, you know, a, a, a big hit that definitely incited audiences and they all loved it. But more importantly, it was also like valued by the Academy Awards as the definition of exceptional motion picture cinema, which I think is kind of cool when you think about that this, you know, sci-fi epic can kind of have that stage. And for anyone who's pissed off about Spider-Man, let me just remind you, (laughs) the Sandworm movie made it. Or is it just only that version of populist movie that you think is worthy? I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm in my feelings right now about this whole Spider-Man thing is if Joker, Black Panther and all this other stuff didn't just happen.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, welcome
0: to the land of most of us. We have to
2: tip our cap to the sandworm. Uh, You know, it it is just the first part of this. And so, Alex, kind of going back to what you were saying before about where this is going, at least according to the novels, what are you most excited about or maybe apprehensive about going into when we do get to experience the next chapter in Dennyville News, Dune? I mean, look, if you know these novels, or if you don't, I'm
3: going to say it without spoiling too much. They cover their six books that Herbert wrote and they cover tens of thousands of years of history because that's what this story in the real sort of like when you st- take a step back, that's what it turns out to be. It turns out to be about this like millennia long eugenics project because basically certain people in this story have figured out that there is only one path. Uh, that leads to, uh, that every other path leads to humanity's extinction. There's only one way for like humans to survive into the tens of thousands of years into the future. And so imagine basically if you have that knowledge and you're the emperor of the galaxy, you rule the entire galaxy and you have to let stuff happen and you might have to sort of commit a little genocide here and there because ultimately it's going to lead to people still being around. And so there's all of these like, you know, really bleak and, you know, fascinating and horrible you know decisions that these characters are going to have to make. But like thinking about these actors and the sort of the journey that they are going to go on that, like the Timothy's arc and then like who's actually going to be in the sixth one that takes place millions and millions of years after the first <laughs> one. Like you could not guess that from watching the first movie. And I kind of just don't I want to talk about it, but I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to ruin it for people. I
0: mean, I think they should stop. I know where these stories go later. It just gets weirder. Like I really are think they should end in the first one before we get too far along until people are fusing. I want
3: Lido the second man. I want that in a movie so much. I just want to see Did that happen. And that's yeah, I do. I do. I really because that just it gives me the creeps in the best way. It takes me about this is what I'm talking about. Like being sort of like going back to being sort of disturbed by this movie and having that be that's a deeper mark somehow if something can sort of weird you out at an age. Like, it didn't give me nightmares, but I thought about it a lot. It should have. I mean, yeah. And then, like, you know, I I finally read these novels. Like, I was way too young to read those books, and I tried, and it was just, I don't, this is, it might as well be in Latin. But, like, I remember reading those novels in, like, in my 30s and just being like, oh, this is the most incredible story and where it goes from this initial sort of Paul Atreides kind of space opera thing to you know, this wild psychedelic odyssey across the galaxy. I love the idea that they're going to keep giving... Denis this like hundreds of millions of dollars potentially to do this as long as these people go like i have you know that's that's the thing it's like I think I feel about this the way that like Marvel people feel about oh I can't wait to see this story be told on screen as it was meant to be like I can't wait to see them like whatever do the the executioner song or something in the X-Men movies like that's how I feel about this that I want I actually want the fan service of these things being brought to life because I actually feel like they have the you know like we've been talking about the beginning is they now have the Capability to do it at the scale that will make it feel like it felt in the books. But also, these will be the weirdest blockbusters. I'm so psyched for that. I'm so psyched for there to be popcorn movies where a guy merges with sand trout and is like, "Look at me! I have I'm a worm with arms." (laughs) Like, it's just so like it doesn't. He said it, it,
0: it, ladies and gentlemen. He said it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say who. I mean, who it doesn't matter. But you know, it's been out since
0: the '60s. If they really are going to come for you for a spoiler. Let's get it
3: I've rip, been and I've gentlemen. been come for for, for weirder <laughs> things, but like look that's what uh, that's what I'm really stoked about with this. That was why I was really you know I'm rarely like a like a you know a cheerleader for a movie's success. Like I don't care because I obviously I love the 1984 Dune, so clearly like I don't care about like you know box office and that does not factor in for me. But I really was happy that this movie did well because it means that potentially we're going to get these down the road. And I don't know if Denis is going to spend the rest of his life making Dune films. It might be somebody else. We might be in some kind of like a Roger Moore version of Dune by the time we get to the sandworms st- <laughs> merger stuff. But like, God bless
2: it. I just really, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked that it could potentially happen. Do we think that Dune can continue to be as successful as this first Denny film was? Because the movie made just under four hundred million dollars worldwide. And as great as the critical and audience perception was, I'm just not sure that you have a massive audience that might want to come back and revisit this time after time after time. I hope I'm wrong because I don't want everything to just feel like a Spider-Man. You know, now we're opening up multiverses and that kind of stuff. I would love for this trend to continue. But Jack, when you know people in high places. Is this something that can continue to have the legs that the first one did? Um,
0: yes, yes, it can. It does. There are incredible moments to my point. I'm I'm just saying it does get more outlandish. I would look at it more like a later seasons of true blood type situations. Like you may need to make some adjustments for sanity <laughs> sakes. You know what I mean? Um, but there is enough maybe connective tissue. I just I think there's things you're going to have to change. I do for believability like. I can't, you can't make it a worm with arms. Like you just can't, you know what I mean? But there's maybe ways to make it seem like he's fused with the worm, you know, like some, you know, the earlier parts of Jeff Goldblum as the fly, making him look a little bit like oh, that. Oh, I don't
2: hate that. Okay. You know, I could go you with in, that. You get into
0: those later parts of the fly. People are not going to be down for it. Yeah. We'll when it was where... Timothy Chalamet to begin with yeah. <laughs> the teenage girls are not going to be okay with this.
3: They found a cool way to do Baron Harkonnen too, though. I mean, the, the, uh, it, like it, a sort of a more stylized way. Like in the Lynch version, he's just a fat guy covered in pustules, like on wires uh, floating yeah. around the room. It's, it's gross and it's grotesque and horrifying. And he's like a yeah. nightmare creature who would scare you as a kid. But the uh, Stellan Skarsgard is much more, it's like a sleek kind of like he's rising out of the water. You don't see his full size necessarily. Like you don't, you know, it's, he's, he's much more of a like a, an ominous kind of scary figure. There's a cool way. I mean, Dindy is like a stylish director. He'll find a way to do the worm with arms that gets, you, maybe not you, Jacqueline, but like some people will buy in on the worm with arms. Like, I feel like that's going to, I believe that that's going to
2: happen. Oh uh, yeah. You're talking to one of them right now. I'm, I'm fully in on the worm with arms. You, you Now I'll be disappointed if I don't get a movie that features a worm with arms. Let's do some, some comparisons uh, here too, because I mean, again, this is what I do. I like making art competitive if if I give you one version of Dune and you have to take just the 1984 or the 2021, Alex, I'll start with you. Which one do you take and do you keep for all time? The 1984 version
3: gave us a plastic action figure of Sting holding a hairless cat in a terrarium. <laughs> and I kind of have to give it to eighty four based on that and many yeah. other sentimental reasons, but that is spoken with you know no hate at all for the uh the 2021, which is it, also it's a, a good
2: tiebreaker is staying in a hairless cat action figure. Plus I would take a look Hans Zimmer is a is the maestro of maestros. I'm taking Toto and Brian Eno over Hans Zimmer. Jack, am I crazy here?
0: Yes. What have we all been on? <laughs> Listen, okay. I will say this Spice. is the choice. This is the choice. The choice is between a complete subpar movie or an epic, amazing movie that finishes in the middle of itself. (laughs) Because like we didn't even talk about this, but the problem I have with Vinnie's Dune is that it is a song that finishes in the middle of it. Like, it is not a complete movie. It is literally in the middle of the story. This is not Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings were chapters with starts and finishes, rising actions and falling actions. And then you preview to the next chapter. But this is not that. This is just in the middle of the song, turn around, look at Zendaya, fade to black. This is yep. not a movie, It's not a movie. It is an episode, it is an epic episode, but it is an episode, it is not a movie. And it's not even an episode, I can't even call it an episode. It's literally like a midi series that, that, that doesn't just end like correctly. It does not end correctly, but I would rather take an uncompleted song that was played well than listening to that Tammany Hall recital
2: we got over here <laughs> that's uh, i mean I, alex i'll go back to you for the final word on dune uh because i do want to talk to you a little bit about the big hit show real quick but if you're just to encapsulate your your love of dune and and let's stick with the 2021 version here what is it about this that you're just so excited that the world finally gets to see um you know a lot of the story points that you have known for so long being a fan as long as you have been
3: I just think it is a completely different type of story, even though it's about a young man with a very special destiny, which is the plot of Star Wars, the plot of Harry Potter. It's a plot, you know. It, it's it's one of the master plots. Everything that goes on around that, in terms of the politics and religion and ecology stuff that comes out of the novel and changes the story. Is something that we haven't really gotten in one of these movies. You know, Star Wars comes out in 77. It's very much indebted to the novel. So a lot of those things, like, you know, make their way into the culture via Star Wars. But there is stuff in the Herbert version that, even if it's not, even if it's only sort of touched on, Uh, just makes it a different kind of story and makes it basically, you know, it's a story about it's it's T.E. Lawrence. It's a story about somebody who goes into the, you know, goes into the desert and then leads an uprising against, you know, his own people in a way. It's a really fascinating, you know, it has all of these crazy political parallels. And I'm really interested to see like where that goes. And I think that's, you know, that's why I'm, I'm most excited. And I'm most excited to see just how someone attempts to pull off the really weird, disturbing, hard sci-fi stuff. Because I think what both of these movies have in common, 84 and 21, and what I like about both of them, is that a real sort of future world, an authentic sci-fi world, would be kind of like a horror movie world to us. We would be weirded out. There would be stuff about it that would be just gross and sort of like we would be uncomfortable with like what is required of us. You just think about even the in both movies the suits where you just pee all day and it recycles your urine and yep. everything else and then you you drink that. It's a very basic sort of like gross horrifying thing that's like totally normal in in their world. And I think that's what's, you know, that's what's great about it is that it's it's an authentically and in some cases disturbingly built out fantasy world that is not like our own and does not have the rules of our own and does not have the ethics of our own necessarily, because it becomes like I said, it becomes about eugenics on a multi-millennial scale, which is a very weird thing to talk about. And it's an extremely weird thing to think about who the heroes are. The movies are going to be and what choices they're going to be making and like how that's how that's going to play out in a big, like, blockbuster movie with, like, Jason Momoa waving swords around in it. Like, I want to know. I want to feel that. And, like, I don't know what that's going to be like. And that's very exciting to me because I feel like a lot of these, you know, a lot of these huge movies are very much about, like, oh, they did the thing, like, the thing that I knew about from before. They finally put it on
2: screen in a way that looks like the thing that I read, the comic book or whatever it is. And, like, you know, I don't know. In the simplest terms, it, th- these humans are very different than us. And if you need proof of that, it's that they got to the level of inventing spaceships, but they never invented TV. They just skipped right over having a, having TV and watching something like the Super Bowl. But now we just get right to these cool butterfly yeah. helicopters that it can just it, it dive bomb and lift up and avoid sandworms. And it's just it, it's just a fascinating. Fascinating thing to look at where we could have gone as a people versus where we are here. Well,
3: yeah, we got there apparently. It's like this is a world where we got to artificial intelligence and then we banned it, right? Like it's sort of, I think that's basically what's supposed to have happened. So there's no, that's the other thing that's great about Dune is that there's no robots and there's no computers. But they, it's a little like Battlestar Galactica, where they can't—they have, have to like call on the like old timey phone when they're in, you know the new Battlestar Galactica on the ships and stuff. Like there's no you know there's no artificial intelligence, and so yeah, they we got there. We invented the smart TV, and then it got too smart, and
2: the ten thousand years later, this is where we are.
3: Yeah, gosh, milking. I'm a cat. always
2: I'm always so uh, so happy to talk to people who have made such a, a successful career in podcasting, and and one of the questions I always love asking is. For you, Alex, it's pretty on the nose because your show is the Big Hit Show podcast. When did you know it was it was becoming this big hit? When did you know that you had something something special that you were doing?
3: I have really, enjoyed, I don't know. I mean, we've just literally, like, we are t- tomorrow, we are recording this and like, uh, tomorrow's Wednesday, and we are launching our second string of uh, five episodes. So we just did this thing. Uh, we just did five episodes on the Twilight Saga. Yeah. And <laughs> the next five episodes are about Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. And so that's, I mean, right there. That's the thing that makes me really happy about this show is that I think that we have created something where, like, we can do a lot of different kinds of stories. And the Twilight season is, like, nothing like the Kendrick season in so many ways in terms of it's still me hosting it, but, like, the way that it's structured and the way that it makes its arguments is completely different. And, like, you know, obviously, like, all of the, you know, all of the voices are different and, like, all these different people. So I'm really excited because... If you just take big hits as your purview, it limits you obviously to things that have succeeded in some way that have either been like commercially and or critically culturally successful. But there's so much within that uh, that you can do and there's so many different places uh, that it it can go to. So I think that's like, you know, I don't know that that's an answer to your question. That's the thing that gets me most excited about uh, working on it and, you know, continuing to work on it.
0: I just have one question on like, just the forethought on these because it it does seem like you like to your point that you're not bound to anything is there anything that's currently been requested that you haven't gotten to yet but you feel like okay like this is the this is the next uh area like if the if i don't the fans are going to lose it a little bit is there one that is more requested than others
3: No, I'm waiting for some, I'm waiting for people to start (laughs) requesting things. Honestly, I think like there's too much uh, trust in us. People aren't like, when are you going to do this? (laughs) Like, I need to hear from, from, from y'all, from like, from Jacqueline, like, what would you like us to, you know, to dive into? Because there's, I mean, you know, it's... me
0: personally, Bill Hader and Beyonce, but that's just, that's for this audience of one. I don't know. I I don't, I don't, I don't know what the masses want, but...
2: Um, They might want Dune. And it it seems like it it, it seems like you certainly know how to talk about that at length. So, you know, could we see Dune having a future on the big hit show? Very
1: true.
3: I would love to I would love to cover that whole thing. There is a moment. I will tell you that there is a very weird uh, Dune Twilight connection that came up while we were researching the uh, Twilight season. Everybody who's uh, paid attention to Twilight uh, and some of the, uh, you know, uh, aspects of Twilight that have become, uh, you know, sort of like now stand out as problematic knows that Stephanie Meyer borrowed a lot of things, a lot of uh, legends and things from the Quileute people of uh, Northwest Washington. Uh, they are the, you know, they are not really werewolves. She made them werewolves. Um, you know, all of those things. The only other author who ever sort of spent time with members of that tribe and then put the information into his books, Frank Herbert, creator of Hi. Dune. Um, apparently like his sort of interest in ecology and interest in nature and all of those things, which is obviously a huge part of Dune and, you know, in some of his other novels as well. Uh, he had, he had close relationships with two sort of older mentors who were associated with that tribe. They weren't necessarily of that tribe, but they sort of lived in that community over there in Washington. And. So there's this amazing, there's a there's one author who has traced it. There's a great lecture that you can see on YouTube where he talks about like all of the connections there. But I, I talked myself out of it. I didn't have to be talked out of it. But like I really wanted to put this in the show, but it would have been like, a, as you can see, it's like a 15-minute digression. You're cutting this right now in your head. You're like, <laughs> we're not going to use that part in... Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. This has nothing to do with Rotten Tomatoes being wrong with the critical consensus, whatever. But, like, that is one of those things. Like, I, it is obviously an obsession for me, and it dovetails with a lot of other obsessions for me, like David Lynch. Um, and so it's, yeah, I would, I would love to do something like that. But it's also a really, I think, much like Twilight, it's a good story because there's a lot of different iterations that it goes through. And we haven't talked about Joe Dorowski's Dune at all, but like, that's a, you know, That's another crazy what might have been kind of scenario for this franchise. And uh, yeah, I think you've, you've convinced me. I think in the course of this conversation that I should be doing a Dune podcast, you know, or, uh, you know, if I haven't already done
2: one today.
0: There you go. <laughs>
2: Could happen. And the first time I've ever heard Twilight and Dune correlated in such an accurate manner. So and to our fans, make sure you uh, you, you hit up Alex and, and look, you can trust him. I trust him. But if you have a suggestion for the next, you know, episode of uh, or the next series, I guess, of the big hit show. Let him know. Before we let you go, Alex, we always like to get a streaming recommendation, whether it's a show, a movie that you're currently kind of obsessed with um, as a parting gift. So what is it out there right now that you're checking out that everybody else needs to get on board with? Uh, the
3: last thing that I watched that I thought was great was the Showtime documentary, The Individualist, which is about the street photographer, Ricky Powell. Um, he was a uh, sort of a party photographer, nightlife photographer in New York in the 80s. He shot for Paper Magazine. He shot everybody as they were coming up, all these young stars. He's There's a famous, like, Have you ever seen the famous picture of like Lawrence Fishburne when he's like 25 or whatever, he's got that like denim jacket on. He's like looking over his shoulder. There's a couple of shots in this movie that you're like, oh, I didn't know that like the one person took all these pictures. And he was like a sort of a downtown legend, uh, becomes affiliated with a young rap group called the Beastie Boys. Around the time of license to ill, becomes part of their entourage, tours with them, like lives among them, like lives the high life with the Beastie Boys and just like their, you know, crazy party antics and all of this. And then as the Beastie Boys sort of grow up and mature and maybe don't like aren't spraying beer on each other so much anymore, uh, Ricky is no longer part of that lifestyle in the same way. And he kind of has to figure out what to do with his life and you know if you're me and you grew up listening to the beastie boys and hearing ricky Powell's name in those songs and knowing who some of these folks were and like you know reading grand royal magazine and seeing him in there and everything this is a fascinating and ultimately kind of sad look at you know what that life is like like what happens when you are picked up by the hurricane of a famous band and then kind of dropped back into your life and you have to figure out what to do next with it and you know ricky has some success and he has some you know some failures and some sadness but it was uh you know talking about like revisiting sort of things from your youth it was like oh that that, this is what that guy's life was actually like that you know that name so that's on um that's like a showtime movie that that and what's it
0: called again
2: it's called the individualist
0: i'm about this
2: that's right. Well, he is a uh, legend uh, behind uh, the, the Dune lore and the explanation of all the great stuff we got. You can catch Most Triumphant dropping April 28th. And of course, check out the big hit show wherever you digest your podcast. Alex Papademos, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back soon. Anytime at all, as long as we can keep talking about Dune. <laughs> Thank you once again to Alex Papadamus. Uh, make sure y'all check out the Big Hit Show podcast. And we don't have a mailbag today officially, but but we're starting to get a lot of y'all submissions for Hook, the Steven Spielberg movie, one of the very few Spielberg rotten movies. And so, for instance, Tyler Harper from Alberta, Canada, sent us a great audio recording of why Tyler thinks that we should do Hook on the show. So if you're like Tyler, you want to talk about Hook, send us a video or an audio recording. Either one is fine. Same address that you would send your mail to where you think about the movie. We talked about our reaction to it. RT is wrong at rotten tomatoes.com. Send us your audio and video as to why we need to cover hook because we're going to probably play Tyler's in a future episode along with a lot of y'all submissions. So that is RT is wrong at rotten about the highly controversial. Some love it. Some including the guy talking right now. Don't so much love hook uh, subscribe rate and review all the good things that your podcast platform of choice tells you to do, do that for us here at Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Thanks again to Alex, to my incredible co-host Jacqueline Coley, our amazing producer Lucy, Brian Perez, our expert engineer, Tim Ryan, our review curation manager, and everybody here at Rotten Tomatoes. I am merely Mark Ellis saying we will see you next time on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong.